Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape our community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. In the late 1800s, a movement was brewing in the Midwest. Industrial workers worked long hours with little pay, resulting in strikes and protests. But these protests turned deadly in Milwaukee on May 5, 1886, during a march on the Bayview Rolling Mills. The event became known as the Bayview Massacre, and since its centennial anniversary in 1986, the Wisconsin Labor History Society has commemorated the event with a ceremony on the former mill site in Bayview. Historian John Goethe has been a part of that commemoration for decades, and he joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to explore the events that led to the tragedy. The Bayview Massacre, it it didn't happen in a vacuum. This was really part of a larger movement happening throughout the country that all had to do with the eight-hour workday. What was that movement about? Uh, It was about uh, social justice and basic fairness. Uh, Conditions back then for the average worker were, they would be criminal today. Uh, So somebody working in a factory, the typical workday was at least 10 hours a day. It was often 12 hours a day. It was six days a week, routinely. You might have gotten maybe an hour less of work on a Saturday. And people on the lower level were making about maybe a buck and a half a day, somewhere through there. And certainly money has uh, become more inflated since then. But if you do the math, that's less than $3 an hour in modern terms. And that is without a shred of the kind of the the safety net. Uh, There was no unemployment insurance. There was no health insurance, no workers' comp. So if you lost uh, a digit in the workplace, you were were probably done if you couldn't somehow overcome that handicap. So unions obviously were created in Milwaukee way back to the years before cityhood in 1846 to try to strike a better balance. But it was not until a group called the Knights of Labor came along, who were a national union and very inclusive, uh, all ethnic groups, uh, men and women, all trades. They were the, the first one to kind of have a national platform. And their key plank on the platform was an eight-hour day without a cut in pay, which was a big deal you know, if you're looking at 10, 12 hours a day. So Milwaukee and Chicago were the epicenters of that movement. It was important elsewhere, but the upper Midwest was where it really took root. So May 1st was set as the the date for the adoption of the eight-hour day. The city of Milwaukee itself gave city employees the eight-hour day. But a lot of the the private employers resisted. Not all. Some did sign on. Uh, But the result was that uh, May 1st, there was a general strike that pretty much shut down the city. Most workers were, they were on strike. So it was a paralyzed community at a time when Milwaukee was the, the so-called machine shop of the world. You know, so this was a big deal to the, the local economy. Why was Bayview, in many ways, the epicenter of this movement inside of Milwaukee? Because the last major employer uh, to resist the eight-hour day was a rolling mill that made iron products in Bayview, which at one time had roughly 1,500 workers. Hard to imagine today, but it was at the south end of the Danhone Bridge. They were, they were employing 1,500 back in the 1870s, you know, the biggest private employer probably in the entire state. So they were the last ones of that size to say, no, nah, I think we'll sit it out. Uh, so the morning of May 4th, there was a, a group of strikers, largely Polish, largely from the south side, who marched on that rolling mill, and they found the gates closed, and they sent a, a group in to 
meet with the management, and the management said, uh, no, no thanks. We just finished the strike. You know, we're, we're back to work, so please we'll go about our business. By that time, there was, uh, you know, there were, people were throwing, throwing stones, and you know, they, were, they were dissatisfied with the result. They made it clear that they were going to come back the next morning. And this is the time, recall, when the Haymarket riot massacre happened in Chicago the night before, you know, May 4th. Tensions were just at, a, at an extraordinarily high point. So Governor Jeremiah Russ called out the militia, and a number of them were Poles, the Kosciuszko Guard, you know, who came down uh, to essentially point guns at their neighbors. You know, so it was really, really a fraught time. And again, roughly 1,500 marched down from St. Stanislaus Church in the morning of May 5th. And there was no National Guard at the time. This was pretty much militia, you know, kind of rather loosely organized without a, a huge kind of a, an infrastructure. Uh, they spent the night inside the plant gates. Russ could come to Milwaukee by then and pretty much said, uh, you know, use, use deadly force. That's what I don't understand. There was, of course, this militia, as you say, that had built up, but I don't understand why they were told to use deadly force. Aside from that, you know, there were certainly a lot of people protesting. Was that the impetus? I think it was largely uh, fear of anarchy. And recall, this is not a time of rubber bullets or tear gas. You know, this was not that they would have used that anyway. This 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 was lethal force. Uh, so, a really chilling kind of anecdote from that period is the, the captain of the militia. They began to approach the the mill, and he said, "Pick out your man and kill him." So th- this was not just fire over their heads to scare them. You know, this this was shoot to kill. And I think the message they were they were sending and responding to was basically that industrial property is of higher value than industrial workers, and that became a real point of, of resentment uh, in the, the time that followed. And it happened the night before as well, you know, in Haymarket. You know, there were someone threw a bomb, and you know, there was sort of chaos ensued. So. The workers came in the morning of May 5th, and the militia was there. Uh, the captain, the same guy who says shoot to kill, at a distance of roughly 200 yards, ordered them to halt. This is before bullhorns and loudspeakers. You know, the 1,500 people, you know, they, they could not possibly have heard them. So they, they kept on marching. The militia opened fire and killed. It's an undetermined, the number we use is seven, uh, undetermined number, but at least seven. And they included a 13-year-old schoolboy who was playing hooky, and a, a guy from Bayview was just watching from his backyard. So it was rather broad, uh, broad fire. And the result was that it, it broke the crowd. You know, they ran pell-mell uh, back to the city. And there's some very colorful, very gruesome, it's a war zone you know, kind of descriptions about crimson blood imparting a, a scarlet hue to the grass and the, and the railroad embankment uh, held in the arms of his countrymen. Father so-and-so gave last rites. You know, so these are largely Polish Catholics you know, who are uh, the, the victims here. And that broke the back of the eight-hour movement in Milwaukee. But what it really did in a larger sense was it galvanized those workers to organize politically. So this is the beginning of kind of labor-oriented politics in Milwaukee, which became a, a really uh, important movement here. So the People's Party was organized the next election, and they swept in the fall elections of 1886. As you say, this was really the impetus, it seems, for what became the defining political party for Milwaukee in the 20th century, the socialists. It was, like, it was, it was a major factor. You know, there were other, other forces at work. Uh, you had a lot of German workers who were receptive to these intellectual currents coming from the old country. You had Victor Berger, who was an organizational genius at the time. 
But in terms of the, the tinder that's lying there, the match in many ways was the, the shootings in Bayview that really ignited the movement, ignited protest. And that lasted through one election cycle and then the Republican Democrats together you know, uh, mounted, they called it the fusion party. And, and people would argue that that would show their their ideological bankruptcy, that, that they could come together uh, despite their rather opposed views to fight, in their terms, this threat to democracy, the, the socialists. But the workers didn't go away. They did not go away. Uh, so uh, you have the movement kind of gather speed. Uh, 1898 is the first time the Socialist Party, the Social Democrats, begin to run candidates for office. And 1910 is when you have the first socialist to govern a major American city, a pattern maker named Emil Seidel. And that lasted till 1960 when Frank Zeidler stepped down as, as, as the mayor, you know, our last socialist, or as he uh, would prefer to say it, the most recent socialist <laughs> in Milwaukee's history. So you have this movement that lasted into the, the later 20th century, you know, that goes back to 1886, you know, those events in the, the, the first week of May back in 1886. What I think is interesting about looking at this movement right now we in Milwaukee and uh, throughout the nation are having, again, a similar kind of labor movement. We're seeing a lot of unionization efforts um, in a variety of industries. Uh, coffee houses are, are one that come to mind immediately. <laughs> right. uh, but there are a lot of different industries that are really trying to unionize in a similar way, uh, looking at what we've seen as kind of the norm and questioning whether or not that that should be the norm in the workplace. Yeah, certainly the the, the terms have changed, the context has changed. Healthcare workers, you know, are certainly there's a, a great deal of organizing going on there. Uh, but what has happened uh, in a larger sense is that back in those days, the turn of the 20th century, more than half of Milwaukee's workers were in production jobs. They're manufacturing workers. Today, it's less than 14 percent. You know, so so the context, the venues have changed, uh, but the, the the cause is eternal. You know, regardless of what you're what field you're working in, uh, you know, justice, equity, and having a voice in the terms of your employment and some leverage in your compensation as well. You know, those are kind of the evergreen, uh, the underlying tenets of a still an active labor movement. You know, that is not as ubiquitous as it was around the time of the Knights of Labor, and especially later you know, in the 20th century, but very much the same roots and very much the same issues. Now, looking at specifically the Bayview Massacre, of course, uh, this is something that I think we've revisited a lot as a city, especially since 1986 when we started uh, this celebration. Celebration might be the wrong Commemoration. Word. Commemoration. <laughs> of the events that happened in Bayview. And that'll happen again this weekend. Uh, May 7th, uh, 3 o'clock. And we always meet on the corner of Russell and Superior Street, which is actually on the Rolling Mills property. There's a historical marker there. Uh, and there'll be a reenactment of the events w without live fire. And then there'll be the, the puppets are back, you know, the, the, the big puppets of, of, of capital as, as well as labor. Uh, there'll be speeches. Uh, you'll have some politicians, you know, giving very, very brief uh, remarks and and songs, you know, including one called "The Ghost of Bayview" by Larry Penn, who was a longtime uh, pillar of, of that commemoration. Uh, so we've been doing it since since 1986, and it continues. Kind of the godfather for many years was Frank Seidler. You know, he was uh, a key figure there. Would always talk. 
And one of the highlights was near the end, he would always pass, we would always pass his fedora uh, for donations to defray the, the expenses of the event. And Frank's gone, but his fedora's still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. My pleasure, Joy. John Gerda is a local historian and the author of many books on the history of Milwaukee, including The Making of Milwaukee, Milwaukee, A City of Neighborhoods, and his most recent, Brewtown Tales, More Stories from Milwaukee and Beyond. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight podcast. 